Giselle. Welcome to Explain Yourself. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you both. Yes, we're excited to have you. We were just chatting beforehand that it's freezing where we all are. So I guess I don't know if we just skipped fall and if winter just suddenly appeared, but it is where I am. It's winter. (laughs) Yes, we had one beautiful day and then just cold. Where, Where are you at? I'm in Pennsylvania. Okay. That's how Kansas city and Chicago was this week. And last week, it's just like been rainy. And then all of a sudden just very cold. Yes. It's miserable, but you know, when you're podcasting you, right. We talked about, you try to minimize all the goofy sounds. And so in the summer I'm melting, I'm just sweating because I can't turn the air conditioning on. (laughs) So I just sweat through the interviews. And in the winter, I just bundle up because I can't turn the heat on because it makes too much racket. So, you know, it's a rough, rough life, this podcasting gig. It really is. Yeah. People don't know how hard we have it. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding. I'm dressed in a bear suit right now. I'll send pictures on Instagram later for everybody to see. Do you you at least have a drink to warm you up tonight? I do. Um, I am drinking a cider. This is a citizen cider, which is my favorite cider company. They're up in Burlington, Vermont. Um, and they do like a good dry cider. It's not a sweet apple juice flavor situation. It's delicious. It's my favorite. So I'm drinking their wits up tonight. That sounds delicious. I am usually not a big fan of ciders because like you mentioned, a lot of times they're sweet, but that sounds like a good one. I'm going to have to try and find it. It's delicious. It's if you're Kansas city, it's more Northeast. (laughs) They haven't fully spread. Um, they started to get into Eastern PA, even I think down to Maryland and maybe DC, but they're not in, I'm in the middle of the state and they haven't made it over to us, but my folks are still in Massachusetts. So whenever we go visit, we just get cases. (laughs) We just, you know, have to stock up for the next several months until we go home again. I love that. When you find something good that you love, you just have to stock up and keep a stash of it. Yes. I have a, well, first I tried to find some sort of cocktail that is related to sports. (laughs) And then I couldn't really find anything that was like really calling my name. And so I just decided to make a dirty martini. I haven't had one in a while. I was like, that sounds kind of good. So I am drinking a extra dirty martini tonight. Julie, how about you? Well, I tried my hardest and I have a apex predator from off color brewing. I thought predator was close enough to just being on the field and being an, an animal out there. <laughs> That's I a bit it. of a stretch, a bit of a stretch. It's not contact me for all of your professional. I lost the word I was trying to think of. What's it called? Motivational speaker. I'll come to all of your games beforehand to be your motivational speakers. I love that. Just like in the locker rooms, really just like, go, go get them predators. I'm just chugging beers being like, you guys can do it. I will, I will <laughs> leave you a bunch of animals. <laughs> yes. You're the apex predator on the field. You go out there and dominate. You know, I really think Giselle just stole the show from you, Julie. <laughs> no, absolutely. There's no way um, that I, I could do that role. So it's, it's probably best that she stole it from me. Well, speaking of uh, roles and uh, motivating, we 
I start every episode asking what you wanted to be as a kid. So did you, did you really want to work in a, in a locker room and motivate and motivate people for sports? I'm going to guess not. <laughs> okay. So the funniest story, and this isn't necessarily what I thought that I wanted to do when I was a little kid, but in preschool, I think it was preschool, they would do this like preschool graduation and they would, they would um, the teachers would all say, okay, we think that Sarah Smith is going to grow up and be this, like based on just what we saw of this kid during the whole year, during their whole time with us. And my preschool instructors thought that I would grow up to be a football coach <laughs> because apparently when mom would drop me off at preschool, I would just like let out a couple of whoops and then all the kids would come running and I'd make them run laps and like we would run back and forth. I remember none of this, but mom loves to tell me the story, just, you know, the way that moms do. So apparently I was destined to be a football coach. So maybe there was some of that sports in mind from early on. You know, I don't teach and that's for the greater good of the public that I don't, but I can only imagine that that was like a preschool teacher's dream to just have one kid running these kids ragged during like playtime, like running drills and then come back and they're all tired. Yes. They're probably like, oh, thank God, she's a miracle worker. Excellent. Giselle, little four-year-old Giselle, she has the next hour of our day. Perfect. I too was thinking that maybe she really wanted you to grow up and become a famous football coach so that she could be like, she was in my class. She was in my preschool class back in the day. I knew her before anybody knew her. I saw the potential. I saw the potential. <laughs> so if you don't remember that as a child, do you remember kind of what your first thoughts are when you were thinking about what you wanted to be growing up? I was thinking about this, obviously coming on the podcast, trying to be prepared. And I do not remember. I remember having times where I wanted to be an architect. Um, I remember times where I wanted to be an author and be a writer yeah, I have no, there's no like, oh, I always wanted to be this when I was little. Like, I, I, I don't remember. I should, I should have probably called my mom because maybe she would remember. Be like, guys, mom and dad, do you remember any of this? But um, I had fun jobs growing up. I, my first job was a paper route and I delivered the Boston Globe for four years in middle school and high school. And it was traumatic for me and for my parents because I was not a morning person. I'm still not. And they had to wake me up every day for me to go do my paper route. And if it was raining, they had to drive me in their car because <laughs> I couldn't take the bike. And it was probably like an every single morning battle to get me out of bed and to get me moving on this paper route. So like they had a whole extra job for four years. and. Um, that was not my skill set. <laughs> that wasn't it. Did your parents um, take a cut of the money that you made for this because they had to? No, they're way too the nice. <laughs> they're way too nice. They're way too supportive. I think like, oh man, my parents have done a lot for me and put up with a lot for me. And um, they probably should have taken a nice solid cut. <laughs> they should have taken all of the cuts. What else did I do? I also, I mean, I babysat, you know, for a little while. And then I also, I was a Taekwondo instructor. Um, I used to take Taekwondo and then I would teach Taekwondo and I would teach like the littlest kids to the adults. 
And I would do that like five, six days a week. I loved that. Um, I was a camp counselor. I had sort of like all, all the fun jobs growing up. And it wasn't until high school that doctor sort of floated across the radar. Um, I almost failed freshman high school biology because I was sort of that nerdy student who, if I wasn't interested, I wouldn't do the homework and I wouldn't do the assignments because it just didn't interest me. And my freshman biology prof- teacher, Miss Blass, um, she was not having that. <laughs> she was not letting that slide. So I got a D one quarter. Um, that was pretty rough uh, to my ego. My, my folks were not thrilled with that. Um, and then I had started doing Taekwondo maybe the year before. And so I learned a lot of discipline, learned a lot of responsibility, um, and it kind of really made a difference in things. And um, so I I ended up doing a project on musculoskeletal anatomy. And I had a family friend who was an orthopedic surgeon and I shadowed him in the OR, I shadowed him at the office. um, And it was just sort of beautiful and amazing to me. He's a spine surgeon. And so this woman who just had this you, you didn't need any medical knowledge to just see the x-rays and go, oh God, that's really horrible. It clearly shouldn't look like that. And then by the end of this all day surgery, I don't remember how long it actually lasted, but in my head, it was like 12 hours. It probably wasn't, but <laughs> in, that's what it felt like. Um, by the end of it, you could just see this beautiful curvature in her spine and this like pretty hardware and everything was lined up and it just looked gorgeous. And I thought it was really cool. And then with, so I tied that into my kind of Taekwondo and like how the, how you line things up when you're punching and kicking. And I did a presentation and that kind of turned it around. Um, the Miss class, she taught the um, anatomy and physiology class senior year that you had to like specially request to get in like an honors class. She almost didn't let me in, but I convinced her that I had changed. <laughs> and so she let me in and I, I did well. That's so funny. So you knew going into college that you wanted to do like biology or chemistry, sort of that pre-med track then? Okay. So in continuing the ridiculous story, I wasn't sure. I still didn't know. Um, And so I remember having this, you had to go to school to get um, advised by some, I don't know, random professor when you were getting ready for freshman year, before you started, before you signed up for classes and they would go, well, what do you want to do? And I was sort of like, I have no idea. And I think I said, you know, maybe med school would be interesting. Cause like, I'm nerdy. I'm good at science, math, like whatever. Um, and she was like, great. Well, if you want to do med school, then you're going to take this class like these four classes, freshman year, these five classes, sophomore year, these, like, and it was all laid out. And so I sort of went into it as, well, until I figure out what I really want to do with my life, I mean, I may as well just get all the recs for pre-med and for med school because like, whatever, I'm nerdy. So my backup plan will be med school until I figure out what I really want to do with my life. So it's kind of a weird way to get into medicine. I don't think a lot of people have the backup plan of going to med school. Like usually that's their first plan and then they have a backup plan. But the fact that your backup plan was med school. It's probably, probably honestly sounds obnoxious to say that med school is my backup plan. Um, but I mean, I went to a liberal arts college. I went to Muhlenberg college and I did that very much on purpose. Like I was interested in a lot of things. Like I liked writing. I liked English. I double minored. I, so I majored in biology because you basically, by the time you get all your prereqs for med school, you just have a biology major. So 
went ahead with that. And then I double minored in English and religion um, because I just took whatever courses seemed interesting out of the catalog. And um, I, yeah, I don't know. I had a great, great college experience. I did a lot of things. I ended up, um, I did a semester abroad at St. Andrews. That was really awesome. Um, and I just, I found a lot of things that I liked, but there wasn't anything that I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is so much better than medicine. Like, oh, this is, this is it for me. So I kind of just kept going along that medicine path. And when you say medicine path, because it's like the MCATs there, and then there's finding a school and, and all these applications with multiple levels of like writing and, and, and interviewing. Uh, but you said path so nonchalantly, which I love. You're just like, yep. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about how, what that looked like for you? Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways when you have a career that is so well prescribed, like this just is the path that it's, it's really clear and you don't have to figure it out. You're not sitting there going, what do I want to do? Like, how do I make this happen? How do I, they're like, great. You're going to be taking the MCATs on this day. Cause it's offered this day and you will be taking it. Like you are going to apply for med schools this like month during this time frame. you're going to hear back. You're going to go on whatever interviews you're offered. And then you're going to like, What's nice in medicine too, when you're, well, nice, there's plenty of things wrong with it, but when, if you're out there looking for some job, almost frankly, any other job, there is no, all of the interviews will be this month. You'll hear back from everybody this month, and then you will decide by this month and like you're in, right? There's all this asynchronous stuff. If you're in the real world trying to find a job, you're applying to just whatever rolls in. You have to wait. You're balancing. Well, is this the right one? Should I wait for a better interview or a better offer? So what's kind of nice is it, it's a really well-prescribed path to get into medicine. Um, once you're in, there's a lot of options that they don't always talk about, but there's really a ton of wiggle room. But the getting into it is like, okay, great. So I remember um, med, the MCATs, I don't know if it's still like this, but I'm pretty sure it was only offered one time a year. Like literally one day, this is when you're going to take it. And I had to miss a lacrosse game for it. And coach was like, what are you doing? Why can't you do this another time? And I was like, I can't, I literally cannot. This is the only day. I'm sorry. I'm missing this game. And I like, I, you could, you'd get breaks because it's an all day test. And I got like a 15 minute break at one point And I ran out to the field from where the MCATs were to like cheer on the team and then run back, try to try to sneak that in. So, so you, so you just mentioned lacrosse and you played lacrosse in college, right? Mm -hmm. Do you, well, this probably wasn't something that you would have been able to do had you gone the pre-med path, pre-med path in undergrad. Do you think, I kind of think the path that you took allowed you to explore all of these different things really find what you liked in life. Cause I think a lot of people don't really figure out those extra things they love until later on in life. when they're like, I'm stuck in this job. Don't really know what I want to do anymore. I might want to change careers, but I also don't know what I like, but you got to do that in college because of the path that you chose. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's an ongoing process. You know, I think for a lot of folks, just like you said, 
you sort of get in this path, you get in the zone, you just sort of are at that job. You just go, okay, the next thing is this promotion. Okay. The next thing is this. And you're like, you just keep going along and you don't always have to go, but is this still what I love? Is this still my goal? Like maybe this is my goal in college. Um, but is it still what I want to be doing? Like, and, and it's okay if it changes and it's really hard and difficult to make a change. Um, especially when you've been doing something for a long time, right? There's some of it is that sunk cost fallacy of I've put all my time and money and effort into this. So I better like ride it out. And some of it is just change is scary. And so starting over at the beginning, when you've been in a career for a really long time, you're an expert usually, right? Like you are pretty expert at what you do. And to say, let me start over at zero can be really daunting. Um, so it's something that I actually, yeah, I did well in college um, and even in med school of having, exploring other interests and other activities, whether it was sports or an English degree or religion degree or traveling abroad and doing things. Um, and then as I got into medicine, like part of what I was talking about, that kind of really, it's a deep, narrow path. Like people do not deviate. Um, and you get kind of blinders on and it's something that is really quick to use up all of your time, right? And in sports medicine, especially when I'm covering sideline events, when I am teaching and I'm putting together presentations late at night, like it takes all of your evenings and weekends and overnights in, in addition to the kind of eight to five-ish, which is usually like seven to six-ish. Um, and so you, you both stop having time for other things and you just start to like narrow down. And I um, like recently realized that that was not doing me any favors and that that was not actually helping me grow as a human being or even just frankly be happy. You know, like my husband and I would joke that I have no hobbies and he has a ton of hobbies and I would have none. And it was partially because all my hours were being a clinical and academic faculty physician. Um, and partly it was because I had let all that stuff go, um, and not continued to kind of explore. So part of, I mean, we're jumping maybe far ahead in the career track, but part of me starting my podcast, the Mad Matthew podcast, and then starting this women's career transformation Academy and doing all this work was sort of realizing I have all of these other interests beyond seeing patients and beyond the clinical medicine. And I can explore that work and I can do that work. And I don't need to be employed by a hospital to do that. I still have a lot of service that I can provide and help people with. And um, it's been kind of like this whole transformation for me. And now I have all these other hobbies and now I have all these other things that I'm interested in doing. And um, yeah, it's funny because I had that at the beginning. You're totally right. And then it got lost along the way. And now I feel like it's blooming again. So it's really good. Well, you mentioned that in med school, you still had hobbies, which is incredible because um, it can take up a lot of your time. So were you in medical school and then you did like a residency program or additional years to do sports medicine? Yeah. So the traditional path, so I'm an MD physician, medical doctor. There's also DO physicians. I'm an MD um, and we all have basically the same path. Um, but so you do your undergrad get all your recs to go to med school. You take your MCATs, um, you interview, apply all that good stuff. I went to University of Pittsburgh for med school. Um, and then in med school, the things are changing a little bit, but it's still very much like the first two years are 
the like books. <laughs> First two years are the knowledge, the lectures. Um, and then the second two years are the clinical experiences where you go out and you try all the different things. And then you pick, what do you want to do? Um, I had a lot, I had a hard time deciding what I wanted to do because I was interested in everything, <laughs> just like my liberal arts, you know, college education. I just find it all fascinating. I just can get nerdy about almost anything. Um, so I had a hard time deciding what I wanted to do, but in the back of my head, um, I still loved, and I don't think I put it together at the time, but I always loved working with whether it was college age kids or slightly younger than me students and helping them. I was an anatomy tutor. I was, um, a biology tutor, a chemistry tutor, a calculus tutor in college. I helped out with anatomy when I was in the upper years at med school. I helped like proctor anatomy for the first years. Um, I did my, you know, camp counselor, my Taekwondo. And I just sort of always loved encouraging other people to be at their full potential. And I, I had that interest in sports medicine. Um, I didn't know it existed in the way that it really did. I, I was honestly completely kind of ignorant about it. I knew that I was interested in sports medicine um, from a, I thought the musculoskeletal system was really cool. It just works like it's, it's a physics kind of thing. Um, and it just all makes sense to me. Um, you know, that if this is here and it moves this bone, then this is going to happen. And if this hurts, like that's, what's wrong. Um, and so I was debating, I knew that there were sports medicine fellowships, but you do a fellowship after residency. So your residency is after med school and that's your sort of base, like medical career. Um, and then you subspecialize in your fellowship. And so I, um, wasn't sure there's different ways to get into sports medicine fellowship. And I wasn't sure which way to go. Um, there was emergency medicine and family medicine, which I was debating between both because you would see lots of things in either of those fields. You'd get to see a lot of different things roll through. It'd be interesting, you know, keep that varied interest happening. And I talked actually to an emergency medicine attending about this. And she was like, well, what do you want to do when you're done? Like when you're done with all this, Giselle, what do you want to do? And I was like, you know, I think I'd really love to work at a college or university. And I would love to take care of their student athletes and work out of their student health. I didn't know these jobs even existed. I thought I would just sweet talk some college into letting me like hire me for their student health. And I would just magically get to take care of their student athletes. The jobs actually exist. And I just didn't even know. And she was like, Giselle, you want to do family medicine. That's like, like go Google this. <laughs> like You can find this. This is what they do. And so I was like, oh shoot. So um, I went family medicine. So I did my family medicine residency after med school. That's three years. And then I did a sports medicine fellowship, which is one year after that. And then I was a grown-up doctor <laughs> after all of that many, many years of training. And I'm happy to hear that there was a, a, a job, a real job out there waiting for you. And you didn't just have to, like you said, sweet talk your way into something after all that. I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. And describing it as a real grown-up doctor, I think it's funny too, because you guys spend so long working towards something and I'm sure at times it feels like you're never gonna, it's never going to end and you're never going to get there. So what was it like getting that first job after you finished everything? Oh my gosh. It was pretty, um, incredible. I think for me, honestly, getting the sports medicine fellowship, 
was the first time that I was like, yes, like I have arrived. This is it. Because then every day I was doing the work that I wanted to do, you know? And, um, so I was like this, I'm pumped. This is it. And fellowship is rough, right? So like, I did not always have the best year. It's busy. You're learning a lot. You're working hard. You're doing all sorts of stuff. Um, but the work that I was doing every day, I was like, this is it. And then, um, when I got my first job, I was half team physician and I was half um, associate program director for sports medicine fellowship. So I got to do teaching and team physician, which is like a beautiful sweet spot for me. So it was really like the perfect job I could have had at all and to get it right out of fellowship. Um, and I was both super excited. And I also remember, and I talked to fellows and residents graduating about this feeling is I stayed in the same place that I did my fellowship. I stayed at the same university. I worked with the same fellowship program that I had just graduated from. I worked with the same athletes that I had just taken care of. And it was still a shock because I was the responsible one at like the full end of story, responsible person. Cause when you're the fellow and the resident, you like, you might have your own patients, but you're still precepting to and attending, which is what we call the grown up doctors. And you're still, you have them still as backup. And you always have this kind of like, yeah, like I'm going to do the best that I can do. And I want to like take care of you. And it's not that I don't care. It's not that kind of like, I'm not irresponsible. It's just that the buck doesn't stop with me. And I know that. And so even though I was at the exact same place where I knew everyone, I knew how things operated. I knew where the bathrooms were, <laughs> like, you know, all those things that when you get a new job can feel overwhelming. It still felt like, oh shit, this is this is on me now. Like I am fine. I'm the attending and I'm the responsible one. Um, and so it was still an interesting transition mentally, even though physically I was at the exact same place. <laughs> like I knew everyone and I didn't have to worry about dealing with that kind of transition. Yeah. It's like babysitting your whole life. I know how to take care of kids. I'm, I'm responsible for them when they're mine, but I give them back. But then all of a sudden you're a parent. You're like, Oh, I, Okay. This is different. It's the same, but it's different. Yes. Disclosure. I do not have children. This is based purely on assumptions. <laughs> I'm agreeing with you. And also based purely on assumptions, have no children, but it's, it, that feels very similar. It sounds like it sounds right. So team physician is a role. There's not many of those roles available out there. Unlike other doctor positions so what does, what does a team physician do and what, what does the day-to-day look like in that role? Just such a good question. And it is so varied, um, for so many different reasons. So I'm a primary care sports medicine physician. because I did the family medicine and then the sports medicine. There's also, you could be an orthopedic sports medicine doc. So if you are an orthopedic surgeon who does the surgeries on like musculoskeletal injuries and then specializes in sports medicine injuries, um, as And, you know, colleges, universities, professional teams will have both my, when I was working with like D one universities, UConn and Yale, um, they happened to be able to have me in house. So my like 50% that I was in house at my first job at UConn, I was eight to five seeing the athletes, um, as, and I was seeing them as their primary care sports medicine physician, which meant I would see them for their ankle sprains, their injuries, their tendonitis, all that good stuff. 
but I was also seeing them for their depression and their anxiety and their birth control and their STDs and everything. And so part of, you know, for me, what I love about being a team physician and a primary care source medicine physician is that I would get to take care of the whole person. I'm not only there to like help your ankle sprain or to help your tendonitis or to help, you know, whatever that musculoskeletal thing is. I'm also there to help you figure out how is that ankle sprain, like handling you getting around campus to get to your classes. How are you managing like this workload? Are you feeling depressed because you're not going out to be able to play your sport and you've been sidelined from your team for the last two weeks. And I could manage all of those issues and kind of deal with that whole person as opposed to, you know, truly in my day to day, maybe 20% of the patient visits were for a musculoskeletal injury. And 80% were for depression, anxiety, colds, plenty of colds, mono, um, you know, just good old normal college stuff. Um, But I was able to approach that with the understanding of what their life is like as an athlete, what they're dealing with, what they're going through, and how these things kind of all interplay. Um, So I loved that. I worked at a D3 college and, you know, some of it is just funding. A D3 college doesn't have the money to pay a physician to be in-house all day, every day. So you would get to go out like one day a week for an hour and do an injury clinic, or you would go cover the games and you would see an athlete before a game, see an athlete after a game, but you wouldn't really get to do that full service, be there like full-time position. Um, And then same thing, like when I've covered high schools, it's the same deal. Like I might get to go once a week and do an injury clinic, but I'm not really getting to kind of be integrated into that department and to really take care of the athletes. So it's, it's a weird, crazy spectrum where you can kind of do anything and everything. And some of it just depends on, you know, the funding sometimes of what the school can afford. Some of it is like the pros, you think they have a ton of money. Um, And I covered the Connecticut Sun, a WNBA team, which WNBA is not going to have as much money as the NBA. We're going to be very honest. Right. But, um, in the pros, it's interesting because the athletes are, you know, they're getting traded, they're moving around, they're coming and going. There's a lot of interesting science that athletes um, often don't trust the team physicians because we're hired by the team. And so like that makes this conflict of interest. I don't know a single team physician. I mean, of my friends, right? Like (laughs) they wouldn't be my friend if I thought this of them, but like None of us would do anything besides put the athlete first and foremost, but a hundred percent, I could see that an athlete who's like my whole career depends on if I can play or not. And if coach can play me or not, and if you're holding me or not holding me or letting me go back too early and you're hired by the team, like I could see the optics of that. But so then it also, I felt like the WNBA players weren't getting as good medical care, not because I wasn't providing good medical care when I saw them, but because I might see them for a month and then they go to a new team or I might see them for two months and then they leave. And so like, who's making sure that they get their pap smears? Like who's making sure that they're getting not just that urgent care style treatment, but that primary care physician management and treatment. So it's, I don't know, it's interesting. There's a lot of different kind of ways that that can go. I didn't realize that it encompassed everything and not just you know, the stuff that's related to actually playing the sports and the ankle sprains and, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's, 
I mean, it makes sense hearing you say it because it's, it's just like, that's their job and where they're spending all of their time. So it makes sense that they would receive that care in the places that they're spending that much time. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, there's a few things just to have the benefit of having a sports medicine trained physician as your primary care physician. If you're an athlete, like there's just certain antibiotics that we know, um, have potential side effects that are negative for tendon health. And, um, in the community, like it's, it's not that it happens so often. And if you don't have this high level elite athlete, who's jumping all the time, maybe just not be a problem to be like, here's some Cipro for your urinary tract infection. But as, as a sports medicine physician who knows these things, who knows what you're doing with your tendons, I'm going to prescribe different medications that are still going to treat your urinary tract infection, but are going to not like affect your tendons. Or we're going to have a discussion if you have some sort of infection that requires me to use one of those antibiotics, because that's the only thing that will fix it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to like worry about your tendon. And then even for that injury, when you come to see me about your injury, I am capable of talking to you, not just about that injury and what's going to happen with you, but also like, I'm going to address what is your mental health? Because if you, especially if you're an athlete and that's what you do and that's your identity and that's what your like everyday process is, if you are sidelined by an injury, you're not hanging out with the team, you're not, you know, participating, you're not getting the exercise, which alone is like a mental health like issue. And so, but I have the, the knowledge and training behind me to manage that and to take care of that and to address it for you. Um, so even on the like muscle skeletal injuries, I'm able to kind of do a little more and, and kind of talk that full service. You're a whole human being and how am I addressing all of this? But even when you have a non-musculoskeletal injury, sometimes like that impacts your athletic situation. And I know how that's going to happen and, and I can address it. So, um, I mean, I'm completely biased. Like this is what I do guys. So <laughs> I'm totally biased that primary care sports medicine docs are amazing and do really good work. But, uh, I think it's all fact. I think everything I'm saying is full fact. <laughs> Do you have to have those uncomfortable conversations that it's like on your shoulders to decide to bench somebody for injuries that you think are too bad to play? Yeah. Um, and that's never fun. (laughs) Um, and you know, I think we're in this interesting moment in medicine right now where right. Medicine used to be very paternalistic. It still is in many ways, (laughs) but, um, it used to be very much, I'm the doctor and I say this and that's what's happening at the end. Like no discussion. I'm telling you what you need to do. You will do it. End of story. And, and we're moving into a patient-centered model of like, hey, I'm the patient. <laughs> this is my body. This is my life. I would like to have some say in what's happening here. And um, so when you're having this kind of, I need to hold you or I need to say, hey, you can't play sports ever again, which is not a common, you know, thing, but if that's what's happening, it's really, I think about the education piece and really making sure that I'm doing the best that I can for the athlete to understand everything that's going on. Right. And so like they might've had three concussions and it doesn't sound like a lot of concussions. I've had some athletes who's had more than that, but each concussion, their first concussion, they were out six months their second concussion, they were out a year and they needed to be on Prozac and they needed therapy because they had depression from it. And now they're on their third concussion and just like, who knows what's going to happen. You start to plant the seeds early and I don't necessarily have to have that 
you're done with sports today. Talk the second you had your third concussion, because you probably already feel really terrible, but you're starting to plant those seeds. You're starting to talk about it. You're starting to get into some of the mental health about what is it going to mean to you if you never play sports again? Cause I know that's not, a, that's, that's not like a light, no problem thing. Oh, okay, fine. I'll just give up sports. I've been playing since I was two, you know, this was my dream to always go pro or do this. Um, and trying to, you know, and if, if it's a kid getting their parents on board, making sure they're educated about it. Um, and then sometimes, you know, I'd say 99% of the time. And again, I've not had to do that a lot, fortunately, but 99% of the time when I have the kid understands, like the kid knows their parents know there maybe have been avoiding it. They maybe have been pushing it off, but if you can have this like open dialogue discussion about it and really educate, then it's a joint decision. And it's not me putting my foot down as the physician. And I have had, um, one instance of putting my foot down that I, I could not reach the kid, the parent, you know, the coach, um, was really arguing for things and it was just a safety hazard. Like the, it was not safe for the kid to play. He hadn't even been fully evaluated in this particular instance, like imaging studies. Like there were things that still needed to even be done from a workup perspective that coach was trying to, you know, push him back in soon. And, um, the, the kid was kind of like, ah, he would have gone either way, I think. Um, and initially when I talked to his dad seemed to understand we need to get this, but then like coach kind of got in their ears and then it kind of became a whole thing. And so that time I had to say, no, sorry, like foot down. This is my job. This is legally what we have here at the university. This is how this works. And so I'm saying, no, you may not participate here. Um, I still would like to provide care. <laughs> I still would like to get these imaging studies. Like maybe my mind changes once we have done this workup. Um, but that's, that's just never, that's the worst, right? Like it's the worst. Anytime you have to tell a kid, you can't participate in your sport anymore. Um, or even for a long period of time, even if it's not till forever, but it's just especially not fun when you kind of can't get on the same page with that athlete. That's not, that's not the best part of my job. I am that athlete. I was telling Annika this earlier. <laughs> She's like, oh, like you have some, you have some interactions with this. Like you played in college. And I was like, yeah. So maybe I was the one that like everybody hated though, because I didn't listen. <laughs> so oops, sorry. Sorry for being bad. <laughs> I'm healthy. I promise. I went to physical therapy after college. We're all set now. Don't give me that face, Annika. Okay. After she, after she said that she was like, okay, but now maybe that I'm older, I do maybe listen a little bit more than I did when I was younger. I mean, and some of that is just developmental, you know? So some of it is like when I'm talking to a high school kid or talking to a college kid, it's just going to be a different conversation when they're 30 or 40. And sometimes it's not sometimes, you know, I have my like, 65 year old man who wants to play tennis at the same level he played when he was 20. And just like his hips don't do that anymore. <laughs> and it's like, I, I cannot fix that for you, sir. Like, please, can we find a happy medium? There's always somebody out there trying to relive the glory days that just really can't let it go. <laughs> yes. And I mean, like, I want people to be active all the way through, you know, um, but I also want, you know, some solid, reasonable expectations. So they're not pushing through and hurting themselves. And they're not also expecting miracles. That shouldn't know. be too hard to ask, but I'm sure you face that a lot. 
Okay. So you've worked in, you've worked in high school, college, you know, professional athletes. Are there, I'm sure there are differences aside from like the very obvious ones and like age, but what are some of the differences that you've seen in working and those various different, various different things? Yes. And the different settings. I don't know. I think it's awfully similar because you have an athlete that wants to play a sport, you know, and so you're just doing the best that you can to help them play their sport as healthy and as safely as they can. And I I know for me, whether I'm taking care of a WNBA player, a D1 university player, a D3 college player, a high school player, I care the same amount (laughs) for all of them. I'm not giving magical special treatments to the like pro player or to the D1 player that I'm not offering to the high school player. I think the resources are different. So, you know, the D1 college has not all of them, um, but some of them might have like a deal with the imaging place down the street where I can order an MRI and they'll get it in the next few days. And the university is covering any costs that their insurance isn't covering. And again, that's not even all universities. That's just it, it, the, at certain levels that might, might be what you have versus like that high school kid. And so sometimes I want to provide that same potential care, but you have to get more creative if you're working at a high school for an underserved population that is underinsured that has family that is working three jobs. They can't like drop and take them to PT for a $75 a hit copay. Like, and they can't get out of work to take their kid to PT. And so then you're trying to see what you can do for home exercises and helping the kid like figure out how to do things. And so those, those resource differences, I think um, in one way, you have to be more creative and you have to understand the medicine even better in order to like, try to do more with less on the far side of things. Sometimes you're like, guys, you don't need an MRI just because you can get one in the next 30 minutes does not mean it's going to make a difference in what we do and how fast you heal in literally anything, but they still want it and feel like they should have it. And so it becomes like, how do I stop wasting healthcare dollars at this unnecessary level just because they have the resources? Then it's like almost a different, like they just tone it down guys and just like calm down about this conversation. It sounds like a lot of fun. You have all these kind of different options. And like you said, the, just the variability and how and, and what you can offer and when, and, and getting to be creative in those settings sounds incredible but we know that you also moved on to do a couple of of different things. In addition, do you want to talk about kind of where you're at now? Yes. Um, So this is part of even from the beginning when I was talking about having lots of hobbies and interests, losing that and just being too narrow-minded, focused on medicine and then kind of branching out again. And also that reassessing, is this still my goal? Like, is this still what I love to do? Is this still what I'm passionate about? And one of the things that I sort of realized as I have gone along in my career is that the supporting and encouraging, especially of women to reach their full potential and to be confident and to get after their goals and dreams, that was really the work that I love to do the most. And I was always finding ways to do it, even when that wasn't like what my employed job was. And so that was, you know, 
being the anatomy tutor and the chemistry tutor. (laughs) That was being a camp counselor as my first job as faculty. But even before that, when I was a med student and a resident, I was always organizing lectures, extra talks, like trying to do more stuff to help people, um, helping people put applications together for their fellowships that they were trying to get into. Um, and being a faculty and helping my fellows not just learn the knowledge of medicine, but learn how to manage their career, learn how to negotiate, learn how to stand up for themselves, learn how to, especially for my women fellows and residents, handle the male dominated world that is medicine and sports medicine. Um, and as I kind of kept going along, I just realized that that was still the work that I kept doing and looking for and finding and being part of whether I was getting paid to do it or not. And, um, so one of the things that I started a little over a year ago was my podcast, the Madam Athlete podcast, um, and where I interview women working in sports and athletics about their career journeys. And I truly had had this idea originally for a blog four years before I ever started it because I was feeling like we needed more badass women at the top doing amazing things. And we needed that kind of inspiration. We needed to know these stories. We needed to hear about it. Um, and I could help just like spread this news. It took me a long time to get over my perfectionism and fear of failure (laughs) and, you know, la-di-da. And eventually started the podcast Um, It's been amazing. I released episode 66 the morning that we're recording this. So it has been, it's been honestly incredible and it has opened up more doors for me. And when I get a little message and a little DM from someone who's like, Giselle, this episode is exactly what I needed. This really helped me out. I've been having this struggle in my career and your little episode on setting boundaries, like that has made a difference for me today. Um, That just it just makes me so happy. Like that is success to me. And so then I took the next step and I started the Women's Career Transformation Academy where I created my own online course to basically do the work that I would do with my fellows and my residents and my students that was not the medical knowledge work, but that was all the rest of it. That was figuring out how do you figure out your mission and your vision? How do you set goals? How do you overcome perfectionism and the fear of failure? How do you network? How do you negotiate? And all that kind of work, um, that's really that mindset, confidence building, take ownership of your career, take the time to go, is this still what I want to do? Is this where I want to be? Or is it, as I'm realizing, was it the medicine, like the medical knowledge, or was it the helping my athletes be at their absolute peak, helping my fellows be the best that they can be and be confident and build their career and helping my students put together an amazing PhD thesis and like just reach their full potential. That has actually been the thread of my life. And that has been sort of taking the time and really the pandemic helped to go, Oh, okay. (laughs) Let's take a breather here is like, there's a lot of going on in the world right now. Is this what you want to do? Is this really the most important thing or what actually is it? And figuring out what that thread is and what I love to do and having some success with the podcast and starting to go, I can do this work on my own and I have a lot to offer and I can offer it to more people if I do it on my own in this course than the one or two fellows that I might work with 
a year and I would have full control over it. Like I would be able to put the work together that I wanted. I'd be able to deliver it in the way that I wanted and create an experience and a community for women to really get after their career dreams. So that has been, um, amazing. I ran it twice. It, it honestly, I mean, I'd get excited about it and nerdy about the content. So I knew I put together good content and good work, but it kind of still blew my mind how amazing it was. And the women who showed up and who were vulnerable and shared and supported each other, encouraged each other and built a community and they keep showing up. And they, like I started this month in November, I'm running a free 30 day challenge. It's called the 30 nerdy days. And it is um, a little bit of having some accountability, some support, some encouragement to get some of your end of the year projects done. And we're focused on academic writing and scholarly activity, um, but it could be anything. We have people writing blog posts and exercising and doing gratitude journaling. So it could be anything. But you know, the, the women who are in my first course, like they're now in this. And so like to see them and how they've grown and the accomplishments they've had just since I ran it in the spring has been like, the best feeling ever of watching these women take charge of their career, build their confidence, go out, get new jobs, negotiate for themselves, you know, find new understanding, like keep pushing themselves. And like, I couldn't be honestly happier. I'm like a little bit flushed because it's hot now, but also because I'm so excited because it's just been really like, this is the thing that kind of moves my soul and makes me feel like I'm doing good work in the world. And it's kind of awesome. So that's been my new gig. Well, first, congratulations on launching a podcast. Julie and I are obviously very familiar with that and can to attest, can attest to how um, I think I might be a little bit more like you where um, I'm definitely the perfectionist of this relationship. And <laughs> Julie is more of a free spirit when it comes to as she's changing her background. <laughs> Julie's the free spirit as we interview. She's changing her <laughs> Zoom background. Um, but I was like so nervous to start podcasting. It was very much like we have to, here's the plan. Here's what we have to do. We have to, we have, everything has to be perfect before we launch. And Julie was just like, oh, let's just do it. Let's just throw it out there and see what happens. And I was like, I don't know about that. Yes, but right. It's like, it is a great attitude to have. I think there's a nice balance right? <laughs> of having some good standards, but that was totally something that slowed me down. When I, when I was starting the podcast, I think I spent four months deciding on cover art and I couldn't move forward. Like I could not even pick music. I couldn't start to recruit guests. Like I just, I had to have this perfect cover art and my cover art is not perfect. Like it is good enough. It is not some magical, amazing branding experience. It is just something that is good enough. But I delayed everything for four months because I was worried it wasn't going to be perfect enough because was the music perfect enough? Was it going to convey everything I wanted it to convey? And all that did was slow me down. And so that has been some of the lessons I've been learning as on this whole journey is, you know, and it's, it's weird in medicine because you're not rolling through medicine going, eh, B plus work is good enough. C plus work gets it done. Like I just got a blue screen of death. <gasps> Do you know when the last time I got a blue screen of death? Ooh. Ooh. Like a decade ago. <laughs> There's it's something. It's died. Spooky season is over. I know guys, we're done. We are talking about things not being perfect. 
and <laughs> the the Zoom recording slash my computer just was like, I'll show you, not perfect. Here we go. Here we so go. I apologize. No, totally Great. fine. I died. <laughs> I think what I was saying. You were saying was, C's get degrees. Yes. In medicine, you're not rolling around thinking C's get degrees, right? You are thinking everything must be perfect because it is not always, but often life or death. Like you're not trying to slack off. But in so many other things in life, just starting just putting out the C effort, knowing that you can edit it to a B, knowing that over two years, you'll get it up to a B plus, knowing that over like five years, you'll get that to an A, but oh, by the way, you started this whole new thing that you've never done before. And it's going to start down here to C. And as you keep going through it, it'll get better and better. Um, That's how you make progress. And that's how you move forward. And um, it took me some time to be okay with that and (laughs) to kind of work through that. But having started that process through that and then through the course and through this challenge is like, it gets easier and easier each time. It doesn't always go away. Like I'm not sitting here, not worrying about the photo that I picked for this like cover art for this social media post. I'm still going, Oh, this is just right. But I'm faster to just be like, you know what? You've done the best you can. Let's move on. Giselle, like press submit, press publish. Let's go. I was literally texting Julie tonight before we got on and I was like, Julie, you'd be so proud of me. Usually in the very beginning, I researched the hell out of our guests. Like I knew everything about everyone. I knew your deep, dark secret. I knew everything. (laughs) (laughs) Like I could write a dissertation about any of our guests. And then I read this book Well, I read half of this book and then... (laughs) Basically the part I read was like, okay, there's a balance between like over-preparing and not being prepared enough. Um, so there's, there's a fine line. There's like a good in-between. And so Julie and I have now reached a point, I think, where I texted her this afternoon. I was like, you'd be so proud of me. I like am prepared, but not over-prepared. I'm like, I know just enough. I read the form that you filled out and then I mean, that's your job is to tell us the rest of this stuff. Yes, right? And it gets easier the more you do this because now you have put on 36, a bunch of episodes. You have many episodes, right? And so it gets a little easier every time. It gets a little more comfortable. You're like, I got this. I know how to have a conversation with people. That's right. Like, I know how to talk to human beings. I can do this. And it gets a little less scary. You go try to do something new. You go try to do like a totally different task you've never done before. And it sometimes feels like starting over. Oh God, I have to over prepare. But I think you can still dial it back a little bit because you had that experience before. And so you're like, all right, I can find a, I can find a better balance, but. So are you still working like in sports medicine with athletes and doing this on the side or are you like full-time in this business? At the moment, I am full-time in this business. I know it's really, it's really crazy. It has been a ride, but I I quit my job in the pandemic, September uh, last year. So over a year now um, to really focus on this and build it off the ground and kind of pursue this whole thing. I have not been able to say to myself, I'm done with clinical medicine or sports medicine. Um, I have looked at a few jobs. I was recruited for a couple of jobs and, um, I have been better able to over, 
over time and over even the work that I've done putting the course together, gone, I'm going to ask you much more thorough questions about this job opportunity. And if it is not going to serve me, not going to do it. Doesn't matter if it would look good on my resume. Doesn't matter that I have the skills to do it. If it's not the right environment for me, if it's not going to serve me and my mission and vision, then I'm, I'm just going to pass. Um, and that has been really freeing in a lot of ways. Um, and I'll be super honest, like my, our privilege, me and my husband, without having kids, being good savers, having a good financial picture, like I'm able to not work a clinical job right now. I'm not making that much money yet in my business. I would love to next year. That's the goal. Um, but I have the flexibility to be picky about that. I did um, sign on for some telemedicine. So I do some telemedicine on the side, but I really only fit that in when I feel like it. I'm not like scrambling to get in hours. I'm really putting all my time into the business and it's been a real incredible journey. So I haven't, have not fully ruled out medicine. I'm, I feel like I'm sitting in this like limbo, but I am being picky about what I might be willing to do as the next clinical job. I'm not going to just take a job to make the salary. I'm not going to just take a job to feel like I have to, you know, and I was talking even the beginning about there's such a prescribed path in medicine and you don't always see people deviating or doing something different or starting their own business or going out on their own. Um, but there are, there's physicians doing all sorts of amazing, crazy, different, wonderful things. And unless you go find them and get into that community and get into those groups, you just don't know. Like in, in medicine, the hospitals, they want you to just be their employed physician at their beck and call, you know, all the hours, all the time, sacrifice your life, like, you know, and that's all you do. And so you're not like med school and residency and your first job, like they're not going to tell you all these other options exist. You have to kind of go find it on your own. Um, and I was very narrow. I was like, great, this is my like 20 year plan. Here's what I'm going to do. Five years out, I'm going to be a fellowship director. 10 years out, I'll be the head team physician for a D1 university. 15 years out, I'll be president of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. And 20 years out, I'll be the editor of British Journal of Sports Medicine and retire out into the sunset. I had a plan. <laughs> and then two years in, I was a fellowship director and a head team physician. And so like, I just sort of jumped the gun and um, going through this whole thing of like putting the blinders on, not seeing other things. It took me really the pandemic and having that time and having that like, geez, is this it? Like, is this really still the path? Like you set that path 12 years ago, whenever you set that path and that's cool. And it served you well. And you learned a lot of amazing things. You've had a lot of really incredible experiences, but is that actually still what you want right now that you have grown and that you have done those things and that you have moved on in life? Um, that let me kind of go, you know what? I think I am ready to try this crazy new venture and give it my all. And, um, it's been really fulfilling. It's been really difficult. Also, it is a roller coaster, but it has been so fulfilling. Um, but there's still that track of this is what it means to be a physician. And it's hard to get that out of the back of my head. So I'm not decided hundred percent yet. Like I haven't closed any doors. Um, but I'm being really picky about which ones I might go looking in. I think that's really smart. And I think the pandemic has kind of opened people's eyes up to that is 
a possibility and an option for us that we can take the time to choose whether or not jobs actually serve us. I think a lot of people had a, a lot of time to think about that while we were all working from home. And I mean, that's like a real privileged place to be, right? I'm not needing to work three jobs to put food on the table for my family. Right. And so I have to like, obviously acknowledge that, but if you have that room, if you have that privilege and that capacity to step off the treadmill and evaluate and reassess and, and ask yourself, like, is this for you as much as you are providing a service to that job, to like what they're doing. And just because you're good at something, just because it's easy for you, just because you're capable at it doesn't always mean that that job serves you back and your mission and what will fuel like your soul. And sometimes you just don't realize because you're just on that treadmill and you're just following that path and you're just like head down. You're just like, okay, here's what I do. Um, so yeah, I think for a lot of people, pandemic has been a reckoning. At least for you, it was a good reckoning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did mean to, uh, not to jump back, but I was just thinking at when you said that, you said you quit your job during the pandemic, mm-hmm. but weren't like schools shut down? What, what did you have going on during the pandemic, like for the schools? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it was this most recent job that I had. So this last employed job, I was the interim fellowship director. So I was running the sports medicine fellowship, which is training the future sports medicine physicians. Like they're in their training to become a sports medicine physician. I had a little bit of a family medicine practice, a sports medicine practice. And then that was where it was a D3 school and a juniors hockey team. And so I was um, going out to cover games and events and I left like September. And so the spring had ended early, like the sports kind of got closed down early, but I still had clinics. So in that job, as opposed to in my like Yale and UConn jobs where I was just in-house, like I was just there at the school seeing the athletes in this most recent job, I was at like a regular family medicine clinic and a regular sports medicine clinic. Um, and I just would get a little bit of time to go out and do these other like training rooms or in all the evenings and weekends, I would go out and do the training rooms. I'll be honest. I think that the, the pandemic shutting down of the schools, even whenever it was March, April, all of a sudden I had evenings and weekends free that I had never had in the last like 12 years. I had I. I looked back at my three years at this most recent job and I worked over 50% of the weekends and over 50% of the weekend days. Right. And so it's not even just like, Oh, you're occasionally working a weekend. It's like normally a person would get 104 days off a year just because of weekends. And I was getting 36 days off a year because of weekends. Right. (laughs) And so Like when you're in that boiling pot of water and you don't realize because you've been in it for so long. And then all of a sudden the game coverage went away and I had a more normal, like eight to five job. I was like, what is all this time? I don't even understand. And so that kind of started that whole reevaluate, reassess, like realize where I'm at, what I've been doing, what do I still want to do? That was also like, I started the podcast. I think the first episodes launched in August, but I started thinking about it that spring. Remember, it took me four months to get my cover art. So there was some lead time there, but that was when I started to go, this is a thing that I could do. Like I could have this. And it allowed for that 
like freedom, that time to just even have that contemplation of where am I at? What do I want to do? What are my goals? Am I still on the right path? Do I want to try something different? And then as it kind of kept going and I got the podcast off the ground and as like, as this progressed and I said, you know what, this is really what I want to do. And I really want to give it my all and really go for it. That's when I, and the schools were still closed and the sports was still closed. So the most fun part of my job, I wasn't even getting to do. So I was like, you know what? I think this is the time, like what better time to try some crazy new venture than in the middle of a pandemic. So you've had some time to kind of get your podcast out there. It's doing super well. You are putting content out like crazy. You have a challenge that's happening right now. What are your goals in the future? What are the plans for next year? I am planning on early, very early stages, having some sort of a goal setting, challenging mini course situation in like January. I love the goal setting. And I think part of this whole thing is when you, when you have your mission and vision and when you have your values and when you understand like your identity and when you can start there and reassess and reevaluate and do this kind of contemplation time and set some actual goals for you that like you can then follow. Um, I think you make so much more progress rather than the sort of reactive ways that we move through life and through our career, right? Whether it's just, Oh, I got these 10 emails. I must reply to them right now. And, you know, there's always somebody asking you to do something or you're, need to be on this committee or you need to address this. And then all of a sudden you had this goal of publishing five articles. You had this goal of getting promoted to associate professorship. You had a goal of starting a podcast, but all those goals got put to the wayside because you never really fleshed them out. You never took the time to go, what are my priorities? What is my actual mission? And so all these things are coming at me. Where do I want to focus my time? How do I want to set myself up for success? And I get real excited and nerdy about New Year's resolutions. So I thought January would be a good time to put that on. Um, and then I want to run the course again two times next year. Um, and I am planning on a get together for all the graduates of the course in April at um, not everyone in the course has to be a sports medicine physician or an athletic trainer or sports medicine related at all but the early members of my course, just because that's who I know, like <laughs> those are my people. Many of them are physicians, athletic trainers, physical therapists. Um, so at AMSSM, which is our National Society for Sports Medicine, it's in April, it's gonna be in Austin, Texas. I'm gonna put together a little reunion party for us. But one of the things that I'd like to do is also have a annual like retreat of anyone could come. You don't have to have been a course member, but if you are a woman working in a male dominated field and need a little extra encouragement and support and a little confidence boost that can put together a retreat somewhere fun and put together a little conference, a little something. So that is also one of my goals, big goals. I said, I wrote down in my goal for this year because I love the resolutions. And I said, all right, I want to make $250,000 from Madam Athlete this year. And I will tell you, I'm approximately $235,000 short. <laughs> I was just going to say, if you've made a dollar from podcasting, I'd say that's a success right there. That's all from the course. The podcast makes me officially $0. It officially makes me negative dollars <laughs> because of posting and you know all that jazz. Theoretically, if it helps people get to know me a little better, like me, if they're interested in taking the course, then that's where theoretically the money comes in. That's the goal. If you want to just give me money, anyone who's listening, feel free. Just send me an email. You could just donate to the cause. 
we always like to end the episode on a couple of listener questions and some more fun questions. Not that our conversation hasn't been fun, but just to, you know, end on a lighter note. Um, So we had a listener question and they would like to know people continue to get bigger, faster and stronger. Do you think that will continue or do you think we'll start to see a plateau eventually? This is a fascinating question. Oh my gosh. I love it. I think, I mean, there has to be some sort of physiologic plateau, right? Like no one's running a marathon in 30 minutes. Like I don't see that happening ever. Yeah. Um, if we waited the next million years and the earth didn't explode from climate change, then maybe we would have evolved enough to run that fast. But uh, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, I do think that we are learning so much more in science that is allowing for a lot of really cool potential in these ways. And even some things that are just preventative to prevent injuries and to, you know, we talk a lot in sports medicine about, um, having youth play multiple sports instead of specializing early, because when you specialize early, you get burned out your body physically and mentally. And so, um, I think we're constantly learning different things that we can do to sort of push the envelope and move things forward, but also to just keep people healthier and keep people healthier longer. Um, we don't always do a good job of it. I think recently the life expectancy went down for the first time in decades. So, uh, we're not, you know, doing great. There's been such amazing changes in sports and athletic feats and what people can do. I I, I don't know that sky's the limit, (laughs) but I think we'll keep seeing kind of amazing things. And as we keep learning individualized medicine, just keep up with our science. I think that we're just going to keep seeing really cool new advances and see awesome things happen. I promise this next one won't be about sports. I guess it can be actually, you can put this in any direction you'd like. What if you could gift one thing to everybody, what would that thing be? I'm going to say an appropriate level of confidence, because if I have to give it to everyone, men and women, then I need to build it up for my women. And I need to maybe tone it down for some of my men, not all of them, but you know, I think being just confident in who you are and what you bring to the table is a massively important life skill. And it's just great for your own mental health to believe in yourself and to believe in what you're capable of. Um, and I think that that is a lot of the work that I end up doing in my course and in the podcast is, you know, helping women to kind of believe in themselves and to build their confidence and get after their goals. Um, and if there are men out there who need that work, I'm happy to, you know, give them some confidence too, but for the ones who are overconfident and need to maybe tone that down, that's why the appropriate level of confidence that can be for everyone. I love that. It wasn't like a tangible item and something that is a little bit more valuable in the long run. Our very last question we ask every single one of our guests is Julie and I's favorite question because we love to see how people react to this and answer it. What is your unpopular opinion? I only think like nerdy, like medical ones. I think that you shouldn't be allowed to smoke inside your home. If you have children or dependents or pets or elderly living with you, I think, you know, that should just be illegal. If you're a single person living in your home alone, unburdened by the responsibility of others, still don't do it. But, yes, <laughs> but it's yes. not illegal for you. <laughs> yes. 
Well, Giselle, thank you so much for coming on and explaining yourself. You have been super fun to talk to. We've covered such a broad range of topics tonight. If listeners want to get in touch with you, join um, your listen to your podcast or join one of your challenges, where can they find you? Yes, the podcast is Madam Athlete. Um, you can find me at madamathlete.com is the website for links to everything. On Instagram, it's at the Madam Athlete, and on Facebook and Twitter, it's at Madam Athlete.